Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hi there. I'm Randa Fattah from ThruLine. If you're listening to this podcast, you know that KQED produces exceptional storytelling that keeps you informed, inspired, and entertained. Their podcasts cover issues from your neighborhood to the entire country and everything in between. Support this work today. You can help us continue to bring quality podcasts to your ears. Just head to donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. From KQED. From KQED in San Francisco, I'm Alexis Madrigal. George Saunders is widely considered one of the greatest fiction writers alive, attested to by all the prizes, the respect of other writers, even book sales. Now he's got a new book out, a collection of short stories. It's called Liberation Day, and it will surprise no one that it's a brilliant work filled with generosity, pain, and characters who can't quite answer the door when honesty comes knocking. The book affirms that lurking in every office, off every highway, even underneath the ground, there are humans, and so there are stories. We've got Saunders with us here in the studio this morning, and we're going to talk about this new book, the changing political climate around his fiction, and how stories work. That's all coming up next, after this news. Welcome to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. George Saunders has won a MacArthur Fellowship, the Booker Prize for his novel Lincoln in the Bardo, and wrote one of the most celebrated story collections of the last few decades in the 10th of December. He's got a new book out this month, Liberation Day. Welcome to Forum, George. It's a real honor. Nice to be here, Alexis. Thanks for having me. So amidst your fiction writing, your teaching, your touring for the new book, you're also, I think I can call it blogging. Uh, with your newsletter, Story Club. Am I? Oh, my God. I think it is. I think it's a blog. Uh, and in the newsletter, you explore how stories work in conversation with this kind of community of interested people. So before we get to the new book, I thought it might be fun to kind of do a live Story Club oh boy. bit here. Just starting with some real basics. Like for people who haven't read short stories, you know, in years, since college or even high school, to you, like, why short stories? Like what's attractive about the form? I think they're... To my way of thinking, they're the most truthful because they're the briefest. You know, you don't have to prolong anything or pretend that you know more than you do. You just drop into some human moment and you say, what's actually happening here? And the beautiful part is you assume that all the people in the story basically work the way you do. That, you know, they're not, they're on a continuum with you. And so quickly what happens is you put yourself into the mind of the main character. Sometimes even you can split and go into two or three. Uh, so I think it's kind of like a little, you know, it can be a little empathy training session. Yeah. I mean, do your students or other people that you run across and talking about stories, do they take issue with the idea that people are fundamentally the same or that they work in fundamentally similar ways? I, th- I, I, I don't think so. I mean, well, I'm sure some people do. But for me, it's a good, it's a good starting assumption. Obviously, there's some people who are not on the continuum with you or, or you can't get your head around it. But I always find that my, I'm happier if I start with that assumption. And for me, a lot of my life has been like anxiety reduction uh, attempts. So if I say, all right, instead of populating the world imaginatively with a bunch of enemies that I need to overthrow, I'm going to say, actually, it's a bunch of people like me 
we might have gotten off on the wrong foot or something, but basically I, I, it helps me relax to say that you and I are the same at, mm-hmm. at the core. It may not always be true, but it, it's helpful to think so at the beginning. Yeah. One of the issues you take up in, in Story Club is this idea of sort of dark stories or, or sad stories, which I think Liberation Day is, has some quite dark, quite sad <laughs> stories, mm-hmm. but you don't see it quite that way, right? You don't see it quite, this is just sad stories. Right. I think a sad story is one that, that falsifies in the end, you know, and you're, you've got a, the story has, has been produced such that uh, a sad thing should happen but the writer comes in on the white horse and says, but there was a miracle. They won the lottery, you know. And so I think that is just bad art. So for me, I think of like Flannery O'Connor or even Tolstoy, especially in this later phase, really um, sobering conclusions being drawn in those books. But you can't find fault with them. They're, they're actually quite true. So to me, a story that fulfills its own DNA is now it, it can still be sad, but it's not necessarily, um, you know, dysfunctionally dark it's just telling you something that maybe you you might want to know about this world because you know this world is beautiful but it's also pretty scary you know so to be reminded of that i think it's actually a uh, in a weird way it's an uplift it's a positive thing to be in touch with truth Hmm. you know you publish a lot of these stories in the new yorker and and other places through time um is there a difference for you and and maybe we'll we can talk specifically about the the story love letter which came out in March 24th of 2020, mm-hmm. issue of The New Yorker. And now it comes out in this book. So it comes out first in kind of the most intense news moment of, you know, since 1968, maybe, right? Mm-hmm. We've got the pandemic. We've got the uh, the election going on. We've There's so many things. And the story comes out then. And now it comes out in book form in a totally altered kind of political climate. You know, Biden is president, et cetera. Could you reflect on a little bit, tell us a little bit about the story and maybe reflect on what it's felt like to see it live its life mm-hmm. out in the world mm-hmm. in these different time periods? Yeah. So it's just a story of a, a grandfather and uh, writing a letter to his grandson, maybe some number of years in the future, not too far. And in, in that future, uh, you know, our current anti-democratic uh, enthusiasm has gone gotten worse and we're living in something like a totalitarian state with an American twist, you know. Uh, so the grandfather's just basically writing to his grandson to say, hey, whoa, sorry about that. You know, <laughs> here's how it felt when it happened. Uh, you can't blame me. And, you know, we get the sense that the grandson is has written him a letter sort of blaming him. So it's kind of, um, but it's got a lot of love in it, a lot of affection. They seem to have a good relationship. So he's just talking him through this idea that, you know, okay, young fella, you know, you, you might think if you'd been living through this, you'd have done differently. But let me tell you how it felt to me. So it came out of just really that feeling of like, wow, this this country I've lived in this my whole life, it's just conditional, you know. It's, it's been a kind of a the product of mutual consent. A lot of real, um, very light agreements between people that make this democracy work. It could easily go away. Uh, that would be deeply sad for me if it did. So I just put those thoughts into this character's head. It came out just before the election uh, and. The first wave of response was a lot of people saying, thank you for saying that. Thank you for sort of pre-mourning our our country. Um, And then when it came time to put the book together, I just read it again and said, does it still hold up as a work of art? Not just as a kind of a, you know, a a reflection on the time. Exactly. Yeah. So and I thought I thought it did, because in the story, one thing that happens very subtly is that he 
he starts off saying, keep your head in the sand, kid. I love you. I don't want you to get hurt. And by the end, he's, his own voice is, is starting to confuse him a little bit. He's, he's hearing the cowardice and the passivity in his own stance. And maybe in the last few paragraphs, he's, a crack is starting to show. So to me, that elevated into a, a story. And I thought, well, it, it certainly would have been meaningful if someone had read it during the Stalinist purges. It might be, um, we hope not, but it might be relevant in 50 years when an entirely different political ecosystem pertains. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, there's this element in that story of coming to understand your own complicity, but then you get there and what do you do, right? <laughs> it's yeah, like yeah. that complicity allowed a new political system to take shape that you really can't change very easily or with your own behavior. And you think maybe... So looking at our democracy now and thinking about this, what our political world looks like, do you think that you're called to do different kinds of stories now than when maybe yeah that's an interesting thing because i am but i shouldn't because the art form will tell you what you can get away with you know so if i all of a sudden said i'm gonna you know become a um you know a more a more political writer a more advocate advocate advocative writer if that's a word uh then the stories will suffer so what i have to say is i'm gonna be as politically political as i like in my mind and my heart and trust that if i write stories and try to make them as beautiful as I can, whatever is needed will get in there on its own. I'm a big, uh, you know, a believer in the sub, the power of the subconscious. So my thing is be the best person you can. Then when you turn to your art form, just try to make the most beautiful stories you can and all will be well. You don't have to micromanage that. In fact, I, I can't, you know. <clears throat> you can't. So like if you sat down, you think it would just come out in some totally other form well what happens is if you, if you start with an agenda which of course y'all everyone does a little bit but if you start with an agenda and then you execute the agenda i'm leaving you the reader out of it you know it's just me and my thoughts you sit there and take it you know and art especially the short story at its highest form is so much more intimate and participatory than that so my view is i go into a story trying to confuse myself uh sometimes it's with a, a weird concept or a funny voice I don't want to know what I'm doing. Um, Donald Barthemay said the writer is that person who, embarking on her task, has no idea what to do. So you go in, you baffle yourself a little bit. You get, it's like Houdini. You get yourself all, you know, I'm like, how did these handcuffs get on me? Then um, you, the reader, are right behind me going, whoa, he looks a little confused. That's interesting. I'll, let me stay with him. So as I work myself through the problem, I'm trying to keep you right close behind me. So essentially, we're working through it together. There's no condescension. There's no phoning it in. There's no autopilot. There's just a kind of a authentic exchange between us. And what's really happening is we're finding out that our our expectations and our curiosity are wired the same. So when I go left, you go left. When I go right, you go right. And that's the fun of it, you know. Which of these <clears throat> stories confused you the most when you started it? Um, they probably uh, ghoul. There's a story called Ghoul that's very strange. It's set in an underground theme park, uh, you know, and I had no idea. I was just trying to imitate the voice of my first book just for fun, just to see if I could do it. I, I had read it on audiobook, and I thought, oh, that kind of still, that voice is still alive in me. Let me try it again. So that's the, for me, the best is to start a story just out of fun, you know, literally, like just making sandcastles. But then with that one, <clears throat> <laughs> it got really dark really quick, and it also had a lot of weird notions, like why is there a theme park underground, you know? So even as I'm piling these questions on, I'm kind of like, uh-oh, this is trouble, you know? <laughs> um, but that at this stage of my life, that's really fun, you know? To get yourself buried is really fun. Well, and it seemed like a call back to, like, my chivalric 
fiasco mm-hmm. and some of these other previous stories where people are kind of working in these strange settings and trying to figure out like, why am I doing this? And why am I, what is, it almost strikes me as like, what is work yeah. in this strange way, right? right? No, and that was a big, you know, you talk about your sort of emblematic experiences. When I was young and we just had our kids, I was working this tech writing job, you know, and it was- You were? Oh yeah, but for nine years, eight years while I wrote the first book. And uh, at one point we only had one car, so I'd ride my bike to work and then the bike got stolen. I'd take the bus to work. And uh, it was the sweetest time of my life. You know, we had this little family unit and- I felt really needed and, you know, and I could sort of see my writing dream sailing off without me, you know. Um, And I was working and I was doing things like, you know, um, writing reports for, we were an environmental contractor. So we'd write reports for Kodak about basement methane pollution in the Rand Street neighborhood. And it was a lot of euphemisms and a lot of kind of write-arounds, you know. Um, And so why work? Why Why am I here 10 hours a day instead of with my wife and kids? Because you, this is this is the form that your love is taking for them, you know. So that's got in deep, and it hasn't, you know, hasn't got out yet. <laughs> We're talking with George Saunders about his new collection of short stories. It's called Liberation Day. Um, you have appearance coming up in Santa Cruz, right? Tonight, yeah. Tonight <clears throat> at Bookshop Santa Cruz, and tomorrow Berkeley Arts and Letters with Samin Nosrat, right? Yeah, and tonight is with Charles Duhigg. Oh, so, with Charles Duhigg. Yeah, oh, that's awesome. It's like great, great interviewers, and just be fun to get to know them both. That's wonderful. <laughs> We'd love to hear from you. What are your questions for George Saunders? Or tell us a George Saunders plot or character that you just can't shake. You can give us a call. The number is 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, we're KQED Forum, and the email's forum at kqed.org. We've got George Saunders here in the studio. Me and the rest of the producers are all freaking out. Uh, Stay with us. We'll be back with more right after the break. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. We are talking with George Saunders about his new collection of short stories, Liberation Day. You can check him out, Bookshop Santa Cruz tonight at 7 or Berkeley uh, Arts and Letters tomorrow night. Taking your uh, questions and comments, too, the number is 866-733-6786. So far, the kind of stuff that's coming in is, Mr. Saunders, thank you for your story, your works, 
and caring enough to share our humanity with us. From, that's oh, from Chris. Thank you for um, seeing it that way. Yeah. <laughs> Let's talk about a story. I think it's hard to pick a favorite, but I think it's my favorite in this new collection, which is Mother's Day. Um, set us up. It's, a, it's one of these stories where you're kind of bouncing forth between two consciousnesses, and it's very fun and yeah. also dark. Basically, there's two uh, older women, I think in their maybe late 70s, early 80s, I'm not sure, and uh, they've known each other their whole lives, and this is just a moment where they literally all that happens is they pass on the street, and then there's a, there's a hailstorm, but you find out that they've got some complicated history, and the, so the story's written in alternating sections from the two viewpoints of, uh, it's Alma and Deb, Debbie, I think, maybe? Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. So we've got, in this story, I mean, the thing that's so fun about this is the way that these characters talk to themselves, mm. the way that they are constantly, in a second-by-second basis, kind of reinterpreting their own lives. I was wondering, like, are there things in your life that you return to like this, where you just kind of have to keep thinking, like, what did that mean? Like, that time you were talking about, these nine years, yeah. you know? yeah, yeah. No, I constantly, you know, I remember my 40th birthday because I was on my way to teach and I was kind of anxiously, you know, whatever, self-bolstering, you know, and I had a thought and, I, and it occurred to me, my God, I've been having that thought my whole life, literally since I was, since I, I can remember thinking I've been having a version of this little, you know, three second thought. And I thought, man, is that going to be when you're 80? Are you going to be having the same thought? And I thought, well, probably, you know. So this idea that we're, we're made by our thoughts, you know, and I've got a really active monkey mind. Um, and it's so beautiful because in every second you're kind of situating yourself in the world. And of course you're always, mostly I guess, situating yourself as the hero of the story, you know? Mm. Um, so I, I really like to look inward for that and see, well, what, wh how am I self-justifying? How am I, what grand narrative am I telling myself? And it turns out to be a great way to make a story because if you have one person who's thinking, uh, at a high energy, you know, that's their character, right? That's you know their self you take that person who's thinking that way and drop him into a situation that then i'm going to custom tailor to aggravate him you know <laughs> suddenly you, you've got you've got plot so one of the ways i work is i just you know kind of have some fun making up an internal voice that makes a person and then you say well what which uh pot of boiling water can i put this pre you know pre-made <laughs> consciousness into <clears throat> i mean these people are trying they're kind of vectoring towards self-honesty mm. or like an, an understanding of themselves but they also know they can't do anything about the past right and right. so they what do you make of these characters who sort of encounter the truth about themselves and then are stuck or don't know what to do right i mean one of the things that happens for me anyway is i encounter the truth and i go Ugh. you know <laughs> and, then, and then you tell yourself the story in a different way i'm not a control freak i'm just a perfectionist I actually i'm a i'm a very you know um, so that is, I think that's so endearing, you know, especially when you think that everybody's doing that, you know, pretty much in some form, everybody is the hero of their own narrative, um, or at least trying to be. So <clears throat> in this book, a lot of the, you know, I didn't realize any of this until maybe the last week when I'm touring the book, because when I'm writing it, I'm just trying to make the thing corner more tightly. It's like a roller coaster designer, really. You're just like, I don't really know what it means, but I kind of know where it means and I want to make it throw off more sparks. Then you get done with the whole book and you step back. So I noticed that <clears throat> in this book, almost every character starts off a little bit deluded or confused or misled and then slogs through to truth. Now, that might be why it's some, some of them seem dark because often when they are in the face of truth, they're in a worse situation than when they were deluded, you know. Mm -hmm. um, so I think, that, but ultimately to me, and this has been true in my life too, 
some truths you don't want to hear, some truths about yourself you don't want to know. Uh, but you're always better off if you if you're getting more more truth mm-hmm. and more specificity and more factuality. Um, so I think that's kind of the the motion in the story. And I kind of feel it, you know, when I look back at the period during which it was written, there's a loose correlation. I mean, you go back to, if I go back seven years ago, I had, um, there were a few ideas that I was pretty sure of that have since been overturned, you know, uh, about our, um, the sort of quasi-permanence of our democracy, um, the fact that our racial ideas were moving in the right direction, um, that we would come together in a medical emergency as a country, these kind of things. So, you know, again, I'm not consciously thinking of that, but I do notice it in the book, you know. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Let's talk a little bit about some of the world building that you do. I mean, this is something that in your in your more sci-fi or, you know, um, what's the new word that people... Uh, speculative. Speculative, <laughs> there you go, speculative stories. It's like speculum. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, there, you, you use a lot of these words to kind of defamiliarize, decontextualize people. Um, so like in Liberation Day, you know, you've got like pinioning and you've got pulsing and you've got these kind of reprogramming things happening in this other story, uh, Elliot Spencer. And of course, you've done this in your in your previous work. How do you think about that world building? Is it like the words come to you in that voice, and then you have to figure out, God, what is pinioning? Or that's, you... that's pretty much it. Yeah. Huh. Or sometimes in that case, you know, I knew that guy was on was you know basically strapped stuck to a on the wall. wall. Yeah, but yeah. they're not going to say that. That's too harsh. So it's you, do you consult? You know, do you consent to being pinioned? I do. You know, <laughs> so I think this this goes back to the tech writing days because you would discover alarming levels of some chemical in some guy's basement or in the groundwater. But you couldn't exactly say alarming. You might say concerning. You might say, or, uh, you know, the levels of contaminant indicate future study is warranted, you know. So, so the idea that in, in a culture that's got some baked in dishonesty, euphemism is a, is a good friend, you know. Yeah, yeah. I mean, Liberation Day also seemed like in the actual specific texture of the language, like it was kind of weird AI prompting? Like, mm. had you played with some of those tools that people sometimes use to, like, get AIs to generate images for them? Or I, I've, I've, Well, only the early, you know, sort of shrink ones where the, the, it would, you know. So I, but, yeah, I think that's that's it. I mean, there's what I liked about that story was he's in a terrible situation, but he's kind of loving it, you know, which, again, harkens back to the early work days because it wasn't, I mean, it wasn't that horrible, but it wasn't great. And yet, it was the sweetest time of my life because I, I found a way to say, okay, I'm standing at this photocopier on this hard concrete floor with a desperation ponytail <laughs> because I'm my little rebellion, and I'm going to be standing here for seven hours cranking out 80 copies of this report. But I'm doing it for my family. I'm going to take coffee breaks. So you kind of so I mean I found myself building up a context of pleasure. Uh, just so I could kind of do the right thing. And I think in that story, that's kind of what he's doing as well. That's so interesting. Yeah, I mean, in just to give people a sense, like in this story, these characters who are pinned to the wall are sort of played in a sense or c- mm-hmm. kind of conducted by um, this other character. And you kind of can't help but see the writer in both of those characters, mm-hmm. right? Like right. You're, you're the one pinned, but you're also the one conducting. Mm-hmm. Did you kind of bounce back and forth between? Do you do you identify with uh, Untermeyer, right? I think well, the funny thing is, I never. You're absolutely right, and I never realized that until I was done. Because for me, they're just two different people, and so the one guy has got a chip in his head, 
Uh, so he sort of is dormant until you tell him what to say, and then he'll say it at a very high level. And the other guy is the one with the switch, you know, controlling him. Uh, but I just thought, oh, yeah, that's Mr. Untermeyer. And I imagined him physically, and, and of course, he's coming out of myself, and the guy on the wall who's, you know, singing for his supper, that's me too. But I honestly never even, it never occurred to me until I was done with it. I'm like, oh, yeah, that's, that's this story about being a writer, you know. Because I think if you know, if I knew what it was, then you're going to try to control it and make it feel the way you feel. Whereas if you just say, I know certain things, I have certain memories, I'm going to take them out of any context and just use them for the energy inherent in them, mm. then you, you really are kind of saying, well, if, if I was hung on the wall with the you know, exaggerated power of speech, what might a day look like to me? And then you're off to the races that yeah. way. You know? Yeah, I mean, there's, in that story, there really is this kind of ping pong between the horror of being made to speak in this way but also just the the joy of that kind of like this diction that just comes flowing out seemingly yeah. out of nowhere. And of course, you're like famous for that. These sort of dictions that, you know, these these manners of speech for these characters that yeah. are drug induced sometimes. Sometimes they come up with it, but they're it, it's a it's fascinating to wonder for you if you do feel sometimes some horror, maybe at having these other characters inside you or being no, made to speak not, with not really horror but but i think um it's a little bit like maybe addiction you know if you if you're on a certain drug that puts you into an ecstasy of happiness you're happy at that moment and then you come down and you're miserable because you it's artificial so i think there's something in that story about that he, he really does enjoy it while he's doing it but in the back of his mind he must realize that it's it's not in his control for me the characters uh i i just kind of feel like you know, Dylan says in his in Chronicles, he said, sometimes um, I say what I know to be true. Sometimes I say what I know to be false. Sometimes I say and I don't know if it's true or false. So all of this is coming from my mind, which my theory says is not unlike the common mind. All of um, So I'm just kind of calling things forward and saying, oh, yeah, sure, I, I, have, I have that in myself. Let's put it on the page, attribute it to somebody else and see what happens with it. Yeah. Uh, it's a very Chekhovian kind of model. You know, yeah. we, we contain multitudes and we can just use parts of it however we see fit. Yeah. Let's talk about uh, another story. It's A Thing at Work, um, another, another brilliant story. It sort of involves Brenda and uh, Jen, like Genevieve, right? Genevieve? I think um, Genevieve. Right? <laughs> yeah. uh, and Tim, their, their boss, uh, and they're in just like a classic um, workplace situation. Can you talk a little bit about the? Do you have like a name for this type of story where essentially your characters get caught in this like runaway feedback loop mm-hmm. of you know amping up the 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 action they're willing to take against each other? Like, do you have a Do you have a name for those? I, runaway feedback loop. I, I, <laughs> I like that. I, that's a good one. No, I mean I. This was you know one of the things I'm trying to do at you know three thousand years old is uh, always try to find new. Uh, tones, new, you know, new types of stories. So this one was kind of roughly based on my years at at the engineering company, kind of like just the, that's how I imagined the physical space. Um, and what I noticed from the beginning was that the voice was a little muted for me, just a little bit. You know, there, it's it's a little bit less, like if you compare it to Mother's Day, it's a little bit less over mm-hmm. the top. So then I thought, all right, well, okay, that's where we start. And then that obliges you to come up with something else to make the story energetic. In this case, it was this kind of amping up that you're talking about. Um, and I had to really work at it to, to get the um, the kind of sequence of events to be kind of funny and kind of escalatory. Um, and, it, you know, in the end, it just came to me to be about this idea that, you know, everybody protects themselves, their selves, their self. Um, 
And we do it normally at a low level, kind of a sociable, you know, polite level. But every so often you get pushed and you are in defiant protection of yourself. And that's when things get crazy. So yeah. in this case, the, the, two, the two women in particular get into this kind of self-off, you know, <laughs> where they, they can't help themselves. And neither one of them is, is being their best self in that moment. But they just can't help it. And I thought, oh, you know, that therein lies the whole thing here on this earth. You know, you're trapped in a self. You believe you're permanent and you're central. And then somebody offends you and you're off to the races. And there's no limit to where that can go, as we see, you know, every all over the world every day, you know. Yeah. You know, it's it's interesting that this idea of the, there being no limit and usually one of those limits is like the, the what feels sometimes uncrossable chasm between the idea of violence and then like the actual physical mm-hmm. act of, of violence. In this book, violence rarely goes, and in real life actually too, violence rarely goes how people intend mm-hmm. or what they expect is going to happen. What are, what are you drawing on for, to, to from your own mind, to think mm-hmm. about that moving between the idea of violence and actually the scrap of it? Mm-hmm. That's a good question. I, the only the only thing that comes to mind is when I was growing up in Chicago. I, you know, like any young person, I'm kind of looking around to see who I am. And so for a while, I decided I was gonna have to get tougher. You know, so I was lifting weights and boxing a little bit just around the neighborhood. And um, I got in a fight with this guy. This guy uh, and his friends robbed me. I was I was a chicken delivery boy from my dad's restaurant and these guys four of them came and robbed me one night and they didn't even beat me up they just tricked me and it was made it worse really um so i you know so i was like a little bit of a charles bronson kind of dude you know so i said i'm gonna try to fight these guys anyway i ended up getting in a fight with one of them and it went on forever it was like no one was stopping us we fought for like 40 minutes and uh, it was sick. forty minutes oh it was a, and there was a big crowd of kids around and we were, we were off the school property and i was winning but uh, it was horrible, you know. It's like punching a kid in the face. I, I had never done that, you know. And uh, so I think that's something that I, every time I see a punch in a movie, I'm like, you know what? That doesn't sound the way it actually sounds. And it, and I went home sick at heart, you know. Mm-hmm. And I think he did too. Actually, it was a funny moment where the cops finally came. The cop was walking us both off property. He said, "Are you guys done fighting?" And we both went, "Yeah, yeah, we are." You know, and I and we walked beside each other for like another half a mile, not saying a word. You know, and we were kind of friends there after that because I think we were sort of mutually sickened by that. You know, the the culture had said fighting is good, it's cool. If you win, that's even better, and it wasn't good at all. You know. Yeah, you know, it's it's interesting. One of the really defining moments of this political moment for me was watching, you know, on a live stream. Uh, this like fight between some Antifa people and some the traditional workers party kind mm-hmm. of you know Nazi kind of associated folks and they're beating each other up live on the camera and I just realized like obviously I want one side to win in it like you know you don't want, <laughs> you don't want Nazis in the capital you know um, but there was something about watching that physical violence occur yeah. that I just recoiled like you just melee weapons in the streets is not what we want. No. That, to settle political differences. No, I saw that in San Jose at a Trump rally. There was a, a older woman, a Trump supporter, who had somehow, you know, maybe optimistically wandered into a group of anti-Trump people. And she was maybe 75, kind of a tall sort of rancherish woman. And this, they were arguing, and this one uh, anti-Trump person just up and slapped her, knocked her right down to her knees. And this woman was probably 25 or 26 who, who did the hitting. And it was such a fraught moment because I'm, you know, I'm anti-Trump as, as they come. But here's this woman who could be my, you know, older sister or whatever. So I helped her up and and got her out. And I came back and this 
I talked to the woman who hit her, and and I said, you know, at first she thought I was I was going to attack her. I said, no, no, I'm on your side. I'm a left. I'm left of Gandhi. Don't worry, you know. And then she started crying, you know. So what? And what what happened was that violence it costs in every direction. You go back to see the other woman. She's shaking, and she's you know. So I think I think you're exactly right. That line of violence that we're you know we're, we're crossing it now. It's damaging for everybody, you know. Just yeah. regardless of how right you are, how wrong you are, you cross that line and you damage yourself, no doubt. One of our listeners writes in to say, uh, Robert, uh, I'm enjoying the collection. I felt there was a new level of darkness in some of these <laughs> stories, in particular with Ghoul. Do you find it's difficult to negotiate between that sense of humanity and open-heartedness that you discuss finding in the Russian stories in your book, A Swim in the Pond in the Rain, and trying to make sense of our contemporary life, current political situation, and I'll even say just the violence that we've just been talking about? Yeah, that's a great question. You know, there's, I, there's a handful of writing mantras, and one I really love is Flannery O'Connor says, uh, a man can choose what he writes, but he can't choose what he makes live. So for me, if I, I don't know why this would be, maybe it's being raised in Chicago, but if I start a story in a really dark place, you know, um, like in Ghoul, I, it's fun. I have more fun with it. Uh, maybe it's because I'm not very subtle, but I can get more human emotion out of something that starts in a dark place. And my thought is, where you start a story, you know, the, the conditions that you apply, that's just random. If I say, a guy is walking down the street carrying a Ming vase that he's going to give to his beloved when he proposes to her, and then a tree branch falls and knocks him down and cracks the vase and his suit gets muddy. That's the beginning. Now, that's pretty dark, but I'm not saying the world is always like that. I'm saying it's sometimes like that. That Where we look for meaning and hope and all that is in the next thing. Mm-hmm. Does he get up? Mm-hmm. What does he do? Does he still propose? Does he, you know, What's going on in his mind? So it's just a quirk of mine that I will do dark, violent beginnings. But, but where my heart is, is to say, dear little character, you know, I just put you at the bottom of the well. What are you going to do with that? You know, let's get you out. Yeah. yeah. Or, or not. Or not. Yeah. Uh, we're talking with George Saunders about his new collection of short stories, Liberation Day. If you want to ask George Saunders a question or, you know, you have a, a plot or character that you can't shake of his, you can give us a call. The number is 866-733-6786. Twitter, Facebook, Instagram. It's KQED Forum. And the email is forum at kqed.org. I'm Alexis Madrigal. This is Forum. Stay tuned for more. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. We're talking with George Saunders about his new collection of short stories, Liberation Day. 
And I think we're going to have him read a little something. Uh, it's kind of from the beginning of the story, Mama Bold Action, right? Yeah, this is the very beginning, and it's just a, a woman who's an aspiring kids book writer, and she's kind of just in her kitchen getting ready to work. Again, she found herself spending her precious morning writing time pacing her lovable sty of a kitchen, making no progress at all. Why was she holding a can opener? Hmm, that could be something. The trusty little opener. Gerard the can opener was a dreamer. He wanted to open big things, bigger things, the biggest things. But all he ever got to open was, uh, beans, corn, tuna. You had to give him something essential to open to save the day. Medicine? Heart medicine? You did not open heart medicine with a can opener. Tomato paste? Some beloved person in the household really longed for spaghetti? Old Italian gal? Friend to all? On her last legs? The spaghetti brought her back to Florence or whatever? But the modern high-tech can opener, Cliff, without partying with a wicked colander and a cynical head of lettuce, Gerard saw his chance. Even though he dated back to the 1960s and didn't have a fancy rubber handle like Cliff, he could still open stuff. This was it, his chance to help dear sweet Mama Tinty get her final pre-death bowl of... Ugh, honestly. Why was Mr. Potts going nuts behind the gate in the mudroom? She'd already given him three of those peanut butter thingies. The discontented dog... The discontented dog was never happy, no matter how many peanut butter thingies he was given. When he was in, he wanted out. When out, she grabbed another peanut butter thingy from the box. The peanut butter thingy who sacrificed himself so the other peanut butter thingies in his box could live. Jim, the peanut butter thingy, pushed his peanut-shaped body higher and higher toward the questing human hand. Jake and Polly watched, amazed. Was Jim trying to get eaten? Go on, live your dreams, you two. Jim shouted as a thumb and a finger grasped him around his uh, slender place, the place that, for peanut butter thingies, served as a waist. She moved the gate, gave Mr. Potts the peanut butter thingy, leaned out the door, called for Derek to come put Mr. Potts on the tie-out. No reply. The son who failed to reply. Once upon a time, there was a son who, when called, failed to reply. Was he deliberately ignoring her? Because pre-adolescent? Was he masturbating yet? Was that her business? The mother faithfully checked underwear sheets for signs of masturbation so that, as needed, she could let him know in her quiet way that everyone, even famous people, even our great historical... A time for oneself. George Washington, 12 years of age, lay in his bed. A four-poster, which had been made, as all beds were back then, by hand. Was it weird? What he'd been imagining? Their neighbor, Mrs. Betsy Alcott, in that form-fitting bodice, reaching over to take off his tricorn hat? No. If a person felt something, it was, by definition, normal. If he found himself touching himself while imagining the slender Mrs. Alcott bringing her quill pen absentmindedly to her full lips, no doubt other little boys in other times and places had felt inclined to touch themselves while imagining similar things. Therefore, it was fine what he was doing. He suddenly felt so free, and feeling free began to dream of a new land, a land where all could feel as free as... Lord... Nearly noon. Time to sit down and actually write something. Oh, man, that was... George Saunders cracked me up here in the studio with the... I forgot about the masturbation. I I, as did I. As did I. Um, but, you know, it, it has a nice lesson. Yes, it, it has does. A nice, it has a nice lesson. Feel free. Um, <laughs> and the George Washington parts... Um, there were so many parts of that passage that, uh, that I loved. I mean, like a tiny thing. 
for peanut butter thingies served as a waste. You yeah. know, everybody yeah. can imagine the little peanut butter thingy. You know, I know exactly what you're talking about. Well, um, that's the essence of it because if, if it's that assumption that we all are imagining the peanut butter thingies to be shaped that way. And if if I'm right, then we we connect just that that little bit. Right, you know, right, yeah. right. It's like in that Stephen King book on writing where he talks about imagine a bunny and it's got a blue dot on its ear. And right. you go, boom, got right. it. That's blue, it. You that's know, it. and he talks that's about right. it. Yeah, beautiful. Um, we have uh, a caller, Taylor, who wants to um, ask you a question about uh, Lincoln and the Bardo, I think. Welcome, Taylor. Hi. Um, this is so cool. Lincoln and the Bardo is my favorite book. Um, oh, thank you. So it's so awesome to be able to ask you about um, this line that has just stuck with me um, for years since I read it, and it's uh, Lincoln reflecting on bringing his son into the world only for him to suffer. Um, and I, I'm just interested in what you were thinking of when you wrote that. I mean, you're, you're a dad, so how that resonated with you. Um, yeah. Thank you so much. Oh, thank <laughs> hey, you for thank reading you, the book. Yeah, thanks. I, for me, that whole book was kind of a, um, centered around this, this contradiction that, uh, you know, that I haven't resolved at all, which is, you know, we, we feel, we seem to be brought into this world to love things, love people, love places, love ourselves, love experience and all that. And then on the other hand, everything that you could possibly love, you find out, is completely temporary, you know, completely conditional. So you've got the powerful urge to love, and you, if you're lucky, you have some things to love, and floating over that is a sense that not only might it end, but it definitely, definitely will. So then how, how do you... Um, you know, in a sense, how do you not go insane with that? And so the the light, the the act of leading a functional life is to somehow get in relation with those two truths. You know, and so that the book was inadvertently it was about that because I'm in the head of Lincoln, who's so vital to his time and such an you know an amazing person, and yet he's just been floored by this loss, and he's trying to figure out some reason to keep going. Basically, Taylor, is that answer your question? Is that how you were thinking about that passage? It did. I mean, I guess I don't have kids, and I think to me, I was just like, "Wow, yeah, that, <laughs> that yeah, seems yeah. that's a tough thing to grapple with." And I, I mean, at the, when I was reading it, I um, my boss at the time was a new father, and I got to talk to him about that, and it, it was very comforting actually to know that he had that thought process. But it, I don't know. I wonder mm-hmm. how many how many people don't. <laughs> well, I think the upshot of it is is kind of like humility because you realize that if you're happy in this moment you're just lucky you know and uh, Chekhov has that great line about every happy man should have a happy man in his closet or I'm sorry every happy man should have an unhappy man in his closet with a hammer to remind him by his constant tapping that not everyone is happy and sooner or later life will show him its claws you know yeah yeah I mean when I had children I stopped being able to consume entire types of entertainment mm-hmm. or culture like anything where any child ever got hurt i just absolutely couldn't do it and i and i have wondered that because you do seem like such a family loving loving person in general is it hard to do this to your character sometimes or to to go through this with them i i'm not really like you know, I'm not a method actor. Like for me, you're, a, a character is is a collection of sentences, really. And every day they change a little because you add or take away sentences referring to them. So I feel I feel the emotion of it, and I certainly um, don't like you know putting them through it. But again, I think if you a story doesn't throw off any sparks, it doesn't comfort the reader at all. 
if there's not something really at stake. So, you know, if I, and, you know, it's kind of like the thing, no, no animals were harmed in the filming of this movie. No actual humans are harmed. We're just playing a little game together. You know, we're playing a game of generating mutual empathy and then seeing where it takes us. So, you know, it's like, you know, I sometimes think weirdly of those Charlie Brown uh, <laughs> specials, you know. Yeah. Big-headed kids. They can't stand up with heads that big. It's impossible. Where are the sidewalks? Why do the parents talk like that? And yet when I was a kid, I had a really, you know, deep emotional responses to those in spite of the distortion inherent in the form. Maybe because, Maybe because of, it, of it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, got other some other questions uh, coming in from people. Kevin writes, uh, I've learned, hopefully, some things from reading great writers, writing about writing, and I've learned as much from you as anybody. Listening or reading you talk about honesty to the story, to the sentence, to the writing process, etc., has been as important to me as just about anything. Thank you. How much of a role, if any, does an editor play now in your process in bringing a work to completion these days? And thanks again so much for your work in writing. Well, thank you for the generosity of that question. I have um, three editors that I use. One is my wife, Paula, one is Deborah Treesmith, the New Yorker, if the story's being there. And one is Andy Ward, who's my editor at Random House. Incredibly important. Because I, I take it, I mean, I'm pretty obsessive. And I work really hard. And I, I, I don't show anybody anything until I'm absolutely sure it's right. And then I'm waiting to find out that it's not. And, and anxious, because you can only go so far. So each of those people in their own way uh, will tell me. And see, they're, they're also very ego-free editors, those three. Mm-hmm. So they'll tell me where I'm not fully being myself. And so sometimes it's just cuts. Uh, you'll see somebody will cut something out. Um, and when I look at the cut, 80% of the time coming from those sources, I'm like, yes, that's what I meant. Thank you for bringing me a step closer to what I meant to do. Yeah. You know? yeah, so very important. If you, if you have the right editors. A, a bad editor can be disastrous, but I haven't had one really in, you know, in all these years. Yeah. Another uh, listener, I love these appreciations. Mike writes, um, I first encountered your work reading the short story at the beginning of 10th of December. The way you nailed the tone of the teenage girl as she sashayed down the stairs caught me completely off guard. I burst into a chuckle repeatedly, and I never do that. (laughs) Your humor later saved me on election night 2020 as I progressively began to feel all was lost in a story in Pastorelli. Again, made me laugh. I'm curious as to the origins of your light touch that has such a generous spirit. Good parenting? Um, Thank you. Yes, good parenting for sure. And I think also, um, yeah, that was in our family, that was kind of the thing. It was um, south side of Chicago, so lots of, of again, dark humor. Um, <laughs> one of the funniest things my dad ever told me was we, we he came home from a funeral of a neighbor. And uh, he said that, you know, this neighbor's mother had passed away, or father, I can't remember, but say mother, uh, at 96. And so my dad didn't really know the neighbors, and he just said to her, you know, I'm sorry for your loss, and it seemed like your mother had a very healthy, long life. And the woman said, yeah, this is the sickest she's ever been. You know, So that was the kind of humor. And it was it's dark, it's weird, but it's also very tender. You know, And my dad just said he just nodded, and yeah. You know. <laughs> so I think that was modeled early, that one way to um, engage deeper with life is to tell the truth, even if it's a little brusque, and then, but do it with a certain gentleness that that it it admits the truth into the room, and then if the truth is in the room, everything else gets sort of more uh, mm-hmm. interesting, and and people are honest. So in stories, I'll often have a, you know, there's a, a dark thing or a difficult thing, uh, or or sometimes even a kind of sentimental or lyrical thing, and my gut instincts is just to sort of counterbalance with a, a little bit of crude humor, just to mm-hmm. you know, and the the whole game is just to keep you the reader 
on board with me. You know, so if you say, oh, this is dark, 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 I'm going to go do something else. And I say, wait, joke. <laughs> and you stay, then that's the game. You know? Yeah. You know, uh, last thematic thing I kind of want to approach here is just because it comes up in this book many times. It's that, you know, we kind of need to communicate truths to each other and, and human to generate human intimacy, just to be able to, to, to actually communicate. And yet we've lost this world where there's kind of a baseline privacy or kind of dedication mm. to reality. And so you have all these people who they can't really communicate because they can't say the, the truth about the world or, or themselves. Do you think that that's something that has changed? Or do you think that's just kind of like a, a core feature mm. of, of the human experience? I, I think both. I think one of the fundamental things of of human life is I feel at a 10 and I express at a clumsy six, you know, and, and, uh, so, so we're always caught in that, you know, I, I want to tell you this, but I can't. So that's just, that's just human nature. But I think lately, I think too, there's a kind of a weird, I don't know. I mean, this is, if you look at the, the number of communications we have now through social media and say partisan media that are, what we used to say in geology, surficial, just the top two inches of soil. You know, they're designed by by these by these apps to to be agitating and to be attention seeking, and to be um, sort of snarky and quick. I would say over the last X number of years, there's been a big shift. A lot of our our exchanges are happening in that in that <laughs> space. Um, and as somebody who spends a lot of time in the other space, which is writing a story for eight months. Asking a character over and over again, am I being fair? Is there anything you want to say? I want to see you more completely. And then also in that same space, saying to the reader, I hope you feel me valuing you in every line. I don't know you, but I hope in every line you feel me regarding you highly. The comparison of those two modes and thinking of what happens if you suddenly are spending 10 times as much time in the shallow mode, I think it explains a lot of the the public violence that we're seeing and a lot of the agitation and the general unhappiness. You, you know, the... In, the, in that Russian book, the model I tried to make was pick up a Chekhov story. Note that your mind is uninflected. Read the story. Note the inflection of your mind when you're done. If you got the bandwidth, go back and see how that happened. You know, If you, if you take your mind uh, before social media and then engage in that for six hours and watch your mind at the end, multiply that times 20 billion, there's sort of an answer. You know? Yeah. Let's uh, bring in one last caller, Eric in San Anselmo. Welcome. Hi. So um, much appreciate getting on. Um, the question I had was a uh, big fan of, 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 of yours. And, of course, um, Ghoul the, uh, uh, has uh, been a real touchstone. Um, really enjoyed it. Uh, um, read it along with a friend, and we discussed it for quite for hours, and I realized things I didn't understand about it. I'm just wondering if you could talk a little bit about um, your inspiration for that story and the process of making mm-hmm. it. it just, I'd, I'd love to know whatever you'd care to share. Sure. Thanks, Eric, for, yeah, thanks for reading it. Yeah, well, as I said, I just had done the audiobook for Civil Warland and uh, thought, oh, that's, that, I could still do that voice. It's still, it's still, it's not gone, you know, dusty. I still, I, it still speaks to me. So I just started goofing around in that voice, honestly, and uh I think it might have been around Halloween a couple of years ago, and so I just thought, ah, haunted house, uh, hell, hell, hell themed theme park, you know, um, 
and really that that's it's kind of embarrassing but that's the way I work is I just try to have some fun in the first couple pages uh, spend a lot of time tuning up the first two pages so that it's a distinctive sound that I can sort of imitate and hopefully grow and then after that you kind of look up and you go wow where am I you know and in that case by the, the first few pages he was in an underground theme park that was supposed to be like hell and also there was some sense that maybe there weren't anybody any visitors ever coming there you know so <laughs> so again the, the trick is for me and this is you know like you write yourself into a trap you write yourself to an, into a position where you go i can't finish this it's too there's too many bowling pins in the air i can't do it and then you say oh yes you can just just not this week you know it's, it's going to take you maybe a year or so mm-hmm. uh and yeah so really then what you're hoping to do is, okay, so in a story, there's the overstory, which is what's happening in the world of the story. This, so this guy's in this place, and he, he's in a bad situation. The understory is to be determined. So as you're working, you're hoping that your subconscious is pushing that understory, which is the real meaning of the story, up. But you can't decide on it, and you can't dictate it. You're waiting. So with that story, there's a lot of waiting about three-quarters of the way through. I was just jammed up. And in the end, uh, well, I mean, to me, the understory came to mean something about if we find out that we're trapped in a system that's not bringing out our best self and that is false and that is violent what what do you do you know what 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 do you do and and to me the story was about him getting from a place where he was blind to his reality uh to where he totally saw it the scales had fallen from his eyes and i think he's a he's prepared to do something good you know now it may not be for very long and that's maybe a day or two you know but <laughs> he's yeah. gonna try maybe though he's gonna yeah. try and even if he doesn't try the mind is different you know yeah. he's, he's a different person yeah we've been talking with george saunders about his new short story collection liberation day thank you so much oh, for i enjoyed us. it so much thank yeah. you check him out bookshop santa cruz with charles duhigg tonight or berkeley arts and letters with samin tomorrow night samin knows right this hour of forum is produced by Blanca Torres, Grace Juan, and Catherine Monahan. Marlena Jackson Rotondo is our engagement producer. Judy Campbell's lead producer. Our engineer is Danny Bringer. Our interns are Paul C. Kelly Campos and Lulu Ralda. Susan Davis is senior producer. Our vice president of news is Ethan Tobin Lindsay. And our chief content officer is Holly Kernan. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Thanks so much for joining us. Stay tuned for another hour of Forum Ahead with Mina Kim. Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio, the Germanicos Foundation, the Generosity Foundation, and the Heising Simons Foundation. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. 
Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country, we need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.